We want everybody to come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and then just live their life for King Jesus because that's what life is about. It's about living your life for the creator of the universe who happens to be our, our Savior God. His name is Jesus. I hope you know him. With that, we're going to continue in our series. We've been in this series since the beginning of the year. We've taken a number of detours, but we're going to keep on keeping on. And we've been calling this series, How God Makes Men Bad, the book of Romans. And so if you could go to to Romans, specifically chapter 8, we're going to be in verse 28 through 30 this morning, a sermon I've I've titled, The Purpose of Suffering. So as you're getting your, your place in the Bible, I want to, I heard this, this, uh, this illustration, this story, and this story has everything to do with oysters. If you don't know this, oysters have a very unique trait about them that's really spectacular when you really look at it. Oysters, when they, they suffer affliction, when a grain of sand gets lodged inside their shell and they can't get rid of it. No matter what they do, they, they struggle, and it bothers them, and it afflicts them, and there's nothing they can do. And so that, that grain of sand, just one little tiny speck of sand, it's so irritating to the, to the oyster, like, you no, know, he drives them crazy. And they, to bring comfort to the self, what the oyster does, it begins to coat that grain of sand. And it coats it over and over and over, and it, it can't get rid of the sand, but the coating of the sand actually brings comfort to the oyster. And over time, after coating it time and time again, eventually what happens is there's something that is produced that is really, it's worth a great deal of money, and it's called a pearl. Did you know what causes a pearl to be formed? A pearl is a result of an irritated oyster. You see, out of an irritated oyster comes something that women will actually pay a lot of money for because it's beautiful and they make a necklace strapped around their neck. The pain of an oyster results in beauty. The the result of, of, of an irritated oyster, it causes elegance. The pain of an oyster produces something of high value. And I'm telling you this because when God allows suffering in our life, he produces something precious in us. We are going to look at one of the most famous verses in the Bible, definitely without, without question in the New Testament. And if you've been a Christian very long, I'm sure you've heard it, and you've been a Christian for a long time, I'm sure you've even quoted this verse. It's Romans eight twenty eight. That's the verse we're going to be majoring on today. But I really want to look at this verse in context of which the author, the Apostle Paul, wrote this verse and also the verses immediately following. Because I think if we study this verse in the context that it was written, it can be incredibly helpful if it's studied correctly. But this verse can be incredibly harmful if it's studied incorrectly. And so with that, let's pick up our Bibles. Let's read Romans chapter 8, beginning verse 28. The Word of God says, And we... Know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And that those who he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. I say that it is important to study this verse in its context because there's been some very, very bad teaching that has developed over the years because this verse has been taught wrongly. 
There's been people that, that, that say this verse, they claim this verse, and they say it says, the Bible says all things are good. But that's not what Paul said in Romans 8, 28. To say all things are good would be wrong. To say the death of a child is good, that would be very wrong. To say cancer is good, that'd be wrong. To say suicide is good, that is not good. War is not good. Terrorism is not good. Rape is not good. Sex trafficking is not good. Racism is not good. All those things are not good. In fact, those things are very, very bad. And I would argue they are evil. But Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. If we're to understand that verse, I think we need to back up. We need to back up and really understand all the book of Romans up until this point if we're going to understand Romans 8.28 correctly. Because the theme of the book of Romans, if you've been with this, I've said this before, it's about the imputed righteousness of Christ. It's how God takes bad men and bad women and imputes his righteousness in us and so then he can see us as good. We're only good because of what Jesus did for us. That's what the book of Romans is about. In the opening chapters of Romans 1, 2, and 3, the Apostle Paul let the whole world know that they're all under the impending judgment of a holy God. Doesn't matter who you are. Religious or non-religious, Jew or Gentile, male or female, rich or poor, we are all under the impending wrath of God because of our willful rebellion against a holy creator God. And that sounds terrible, and it is, but... God has provided a way to escape. At the end of of Romans chapter 3 and then chapter 4 and 5, Paul in great detail tells us about the way of escape. And I'm going to call it the fix. The, The fix to our sin problem. How does God fix our imminent situation? It's called grace. We receive God's grace by faith. We simply believe like Abraham believed. In Romans chapter 4, Paul spelled it out. The, 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 the who's who of Judaism, Abraham, that's who Paul uses his prime example of faith. He said, Abe believed, and it was accounted, accredited, if you will, to him as righteousness. That's Romans 3.21 all the way to Romans 5.21. And then in Romans 6, 7, and 8, Paul starts spelling out the practical implications of this salvation by faith alone. Paul said we were slaves to sin, past tense, okay? But a believer has been set free from their old slave master. And now a believer is struggling. We are struggling against our old slave master. But now we have the ability to obey our new slave master who is Christ. That's what Paul's been telling us. And then Paul goes on to inform us that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Beautiful sentence. Meaning there's no punishment. It's gone And a believer is now an adopted child of God by faith. That we we were under the wrath of the law, but now we've been set free. Because the law doesn't make things better, it actually makes things worse. So at this moment, where we've been in our study in Romans 8, 8, we've come to 8.28. And it is the precipice of the mountain, the the pinnacle, the view that we're seeing, the beauty and the glory of of Romans chapter 8. And with that, let's read the verse, Romans 8, 28. The word of God says, and we know. Full stop, stop right there. 
three words. That's where we're going to stop it. Paul said, and we know. Here's the first principle I want to share with you this morning. Principle number one, let's consider this. And this principle that I'm referring to is the certainty of God's love. As a Christian, has anybody ever asked you, well, how do you know that God loves you? See, often Christians are belittled or made fun of by other religions and other faiths because the other, other faiths, they say we're acting presumptuously. They say we're acting prideful because we say there's something that we can absolutely know. They say you can't know anything about God, and I would greatly disagree. There's something we can know for no, for no, for no. And that is what the, the Bible teaches, that we can know how much God loves us. That, you know, we may not know what tomorrow might bring, but I can know how much God cares for me, and you can know how much God cares for you. And we can be absolutely certain about our salvation. And again, some say, well, that's prideful, that's arrogant. But what I know about God is all about my Savior and absolutely nothing about me, it's about Jesus. There was a man, he, he helped translate the, the New American Standard Bible. And, and if you don't know, it's one of the most literal word-for-word translations of our modern Bibles. And he said a more accurate way to translate Romans 8.28 is to say, and we know with absolute knowledge. Imagine that we can know with absolute knowledge. 32 times in Paul's epistle, he uses this phrase, and we know. Five times in the book of Romans alone, he says it. And what we know about is the certainty of God's love. You know, there's lots of things we don't know in life. But a believer, someone who's been adopted into God's family by faith in what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, we can know for absolute certain about the subject that we're discussing today. We might know, not know how things are going to turn out tomorrow, but we can know how much God loves us. In the Old Testament, there was a guy by the name of Habakkuk. He was one of my favorite Old Testament prophets. And he's a guy who wondered why God would allow things to happen to God's people. Habakkuk is is a guy that said, how long, oh Lord? How long will you be silent over this? Why is this happening? Why, why, why? Why, God? That's what Habakkuk said. Anybody ever been there? Oh, yeah, amen, I've been there. The half-brother Jesus, James, he said in his fourth chapter, for we don't know the things that will happen tomorrow. That's what James said. Jesus once said, you don't know the hour or the day of the Lord's coming. So there's lots of things. The Bible says that we don't know, but there are some things that we do know. Or at least we should know as believers. And one of them is that God loves us and that he cares for us. Listen to what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter said, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. There is a time when as a believer we have to gravitate to, we have to hold to, we have to cling to with absolute knowledge the things we do know because there's other things we do not know. When you get the diagnosis of cancer, you don't know how that's going to turn out. But you know what? You can know how much God loves you. When you're laying in bed late at night and your telephone rings and you pick it up and and you answer that phone and somebody says on the other end of the line that someone that you love more than life itself has been in an accident and you don't know how those things are going to turn out, but you can know how much God loves you. When there's times that it seems like the entire world is crashing down on you and you don't know how it's going to turn out, but you can know that you're loved by a perfect holy God. So I've heard it said, as a believer, we have to be a no-so believer. 
You, you can't be a so-so believer. You have to be this shouting Christian rather than this doubting Christian. You have to be the Christian that has an exclamation point behind their life rather than a Christian with a question mark. We don't need a hope so. We don't need a think so. We don't need a maybe so salvation either. We need a no so salvation. A salvation that is based in absolute certainty. You can lay your head on your pillow and no matter what might come your way, you know for no for no if tonight is your last night that you're going to end up in heaven the next day. That your salvation, your love by God is absolute certain. That's what we need. Keep reading. Go back to Romans eight twenty eight again. Paul wrote, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Here's the second principle I wish to discuss this morning, and that is of the inclusiveness of God's love. I mentioned this earlier, but I said not all things are good, but then this verse says all things work together for good. There are some things that are very, very clearly bad, but God can work them all together for good. Do you know there's churches you can go to and there's a man that will stand in a pulpit and he calls himself a pastor. He's not a pastor, but it doesn't stop him from claiming that title. He'll say, well, if you're a Christian, only good things will happen to you. And then he'll cite this verse as his reference. They'll say, hey, God loves you and nothing bad is ever going to happen to you that if you're a Christian, you're going to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. And then God's going to cure you of every disease. Here's the problem. That's not true. That's not what the Bible says. You know what else the Bible does not say? The Bible does not say that some things work together for good for those who love God. That's not what the Bible says. Romans 8, 28, it would be easier for me and my little human brain to understand it if that's what Paul said. But that's not what Paul said. Paul also did not say most things work together for good. Paul did not say all good things work together for good. He didn't say that. Nor did he say all prayed about things work together for good. No, Paul said all things. The word all in the Greek is the word pas. If you translate pas to English, it means all. Paul means all things. That means there's no qualification. That there's no limitation. That that, that is not confined to anything. The point that Paul is trying to make is that there's nothing beyond the overruling, overriding scope of God's sovereign hand. So what is all things? What does this all thing include? to, To really describe this, I think we need to back up one more time in the book of Romans. In fact, go back to Romans chapter 8 verse 18. The word of God says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So very clearly, suffering is coming the way of the, of the born again, adopted son or daughter into the family of God. That is what's going to happen. You're going to experience suffering. I, want, I heard one theologian, he described it like this. He, 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 he said that all dark things, all bright things, All happy things, all sad things, all sweet things, all bitter things, times of prosperity, times of adversity, all things. But don't don't be fooled by this. The idea is not that just all things just happen to happen for good. No, the idea behind this text is that there is a sovereign God with his hand directing and guiding. He is the prime mover to cause all things to work together for good. 
If you read from the Amplified Bible, this is what the Amplified Bible says. I love how it puts it. The Amplified Bible says in Romans 8, 28, that scares me when it does that every now and then. <laughs> I wonder how that sounds online. It's probably terrifying. I don't know. But Romans 8, 28 says this, and we know with great confidence that God, who is deeply concerned about us, causes all things to work together as a plan for good. That's really the sense behind this verse, that God is the one who is acting in the present tense. Because this, this speaks of God orchestrating the things in your life and my life and all life to come together for the good for those who love him. The, and the, the, as a better translation, maybe we should say we know with absolute certainty that God on an ongoing basis is causing everything to be worked together for good for those who love him. You see, this verse is not a statement of fate, that all things just work together. No, this is a statement of faith, that God is providentially superseding in all things for his plan. Read how the Old Testament says this in Proverbs 3, verse 5. The word of God says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight, he'll make straight your path. This, you see, it doesn't matter what's, what's going on in your path, what obstacles are in your path, if your path is straight or crooked or whatever. It says God will direct your path. I think most of us here today, we've heard of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. What that, that is, post-traumatic stress disorder is when something happens in a person's life, they're exposed to some traumatic event, and sometimes something happens to an individual and... They relive that traumatic situation over and over and over. This is where something triggers a memory and the event in their mind, and they're taken back to the same place and the same time, sometimes with the same smells, that thing that happened to them, and they can't get past it. But there's another thing that happens sometimes that experts call PTG, post-traumatic growth. It's very similar, but it's where growth occurs because of a traumatic event. And experts say two out of three experience post-traumatic growth, or only one out of three experience post-traumatic stress. So experts' points was this. They, they said, well, for most, adversity is healthy. Adversity is good. You see, it changes the way we think, and then growth causes as a result. You see, what I think the believer, or excuse me, the experts say lines up with what the Bible teaches. The believers can know that there's a personal God that's behind these events, orchestrating the events, directing your steps and your path through all things. That we can have a certainty that there, there's this God that, that loves us through all of the all things, no matter what or how bad all things might be. Go back to that verse again, Romans eight twenty eight. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together. Here's the third principle I want to discuss with us this morning. That is the, the cohesiveness of God's love. Because the apostle Paul said all things work together. That, that, that phrase work together, it is actually a single word in the Greek and it's synergio. You know what word we get in the English from that? Yeah, exactly, synergy, you're right. 
Paul wants us to know that there's a synergy that comes from all things that's going on in a believer's life. That there's this interaction, that there's this cooperation with two or more things. That they are working together to produce a greater result than any one thing would happen on their own. You see, it's not saying that all these random things just happen to you by happenstance. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that there's a sovereign God. And that sovereign God, he takes what's going on in your life. And he works all things going on in your life and my life as a synergy to change you at who you are at your very core. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here. Um, here's one thing, biscuits. Can we agree biscuits good? Amen. Can we agree gravy good? You take biscuits and gravy like really, really good. Amen. It's almost lunchtime. I'm getting hungry. But you're thinking, but that's an example of taking two good things and making one great thing. Well, let me give you another example. Do you know if you ingest pure chloride, it'll kill you? Pure chloride is poisonous. And if you take pure sodium and you throw it in water, it explodes. But if you take sodium chloride, it's called salt. It's delicious, right? Salt enhances taste. Salt brings flavor. It could kill you in one form or another, but in a combination, it's beneficial. That's what God does. That's the idea between a sovereign God working all things together for good You see, there are certain things in life in and of themselves that are evil, they're horrible, they're terrible, they're bad, they are not good. But then God in his omniscience, he takes all things and he uses them synergistically to help you, to mold you into something that you would otherwise never be. Let me give you a biblical example of what I'm talking about here. If you turn in your Old Testament, you could go and find this guy by the name of Joseph. And Joseph was a guy that he was, he was loved by his dad and he was hated by his brothers. And his brothers hated him so bad that they grabbed him one day and they threw him in a pit. And one brother said, let's kill. And the other brother said, no, let's slay, so sell him to slavery. Let's get something out of this. So they sell Joseph into slavery and he's taken down to Egypt. And eventually he gets like a plush job working in this guy's house until he's falsely accused of rape. And he goes to jail for a crime he didn't commit. He's in jail, and there was this guy that was going to help him get out, but then that guy forgot about him, and he sat in jail for two more years. Well, eventually Joseph gets out, and he becomes the second most powerful man in the most powerful country in the world at that time. And then there's a famine. The famine's so bad, his brothers have to come to him, beg for him for food, and he reveals who he is. And his brothers are like scared. They think Joseph's going to kill him. And then Joseph said this. He said, quote, as for you, you meant it evil against me, but God meant it for good. The writer of this book that we've been studying all these months, the Apostle Paul, he has a similar story. He's falsely accused of a crime. He gets put in prison. So Paul did time in, in the clink for stuff he didn't do. And eventually he goes and he stands before King Nero. And if you don't know this, King Nero was the most wicked man on the planet at that time. And eventually they take Paul outside the city of Rome on a road and they chop his head off. And to that, the apostle Paul would say, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Two different men, two different time. But the very same reason things happen the way they do. It would be easy for us if any of us were in these men's sandals to say, why, God? Why? Why are you allowing this to happen to me? Why me? Why Mal? Why this? Why? Right? Again, we've been there. We 
we've all been there. Some of you are there right now. But a believer has to not forget that all things work together for good. We wrongfully think that everything's against me. We wrongfully think that everybody's out to get me. Oh, things aren't turning out the way God wants them. That's what we think. Or the other side of the coin is we can think that all things work together for good. You're asking, what's the difference? What's the difference between somebody who asks why and between somebody who knows that all things work together for good? What's the difference? I'll tell you the difference. The difference has everything to do with the, a, a, a perspective based on eternity. You see, we must look at all things and, and in a sense, and we look at them and have an eternal perspective, right? Romans 8.28 must be interpreted with an eternal perspective on time, not the here and not the now. Because if you're looking at what's going on in your life right here, right now, you're going to ask why. You're going to say, I don't get this, God. I don't like this, God. Please take this away from me. Why, why, why? That's what's going to happen. You ever heard the story of Jim Elliott? Jim Elliott's a famous missionary, and, and he, he's a guy that he had this desire to take the, the gospel to the Aka Indians in Ecuador. And so he and another group of guys, they planned, and they prayed, and they prayed, and they planned, and, and then eventually they took the gospel to the Aka Indians. And they took the gospel to those, those uh, Indians in South America, and they were killed for their efforts. Years later, his wife, Elizabeth uh, Elliot, she eventually took the gospel again to the same people that murdered her husband, and the entire tribe got saved. And right now, as we preach this message, you hear this, Jim Elliot and his murderers are in heaven together. You see, that's crazy in my human mind that God can take all things like that and work them together for good, but that's exactly what God does. It might help to realize that Paul doesn't say that God works all together, things all together for comfort. That's not what Paul says. Because a Christian life is rarely a life of comfort. It definitely isn't if you're living the Christian life correctly. But then God works all together, things, all things together for good. But here's one thing I would want to say. I think God's definition of good and our definition of good is usually not the same thing. Romans 8.28 must be interpreted in light of an eternal perspective and not the here and now. Maybe you've heard the name of Joni Erickson Tata. You ever heard her name? Well, if you haven't heard of her name, she, she, she was paralyzed one day. She was going out for a swim, jumps into a lake, and the lake turns out it was more shallow than she thought, and she broke her neck became a quadriplegic and spent the rest of her life trying to regain gain the use of her hands and living life in a wheelchair. And she has become one of the world's foremost experts on the exact things we're talking about here today. Can, can we agree that Joni might have a different view on all things than, than maybe most of us here today do? She was once asked a question. The question was this. They asked her, why? Why does God allow suffering? And she said this, she said, quote, God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Oh, think about that. I'm going to say it again. God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. I want you to know that God doesn't love it. God doesn't even like it when his creation, that's us, when we suffer. But what he does love is the end result that comes from our suffering. 
Jesus said this. Jesus says the rain falls on the just and the unjust. The sun shines on the just and the unjust. A man by the name of Job, he said the Old Testament, he said, he said, Lord, give us and the Lord taketh away. We know as a Christian, we are not automatically healed. Sometimes God calms the storms in our life. Sometimes he does, but usually he calms the storm in our hearts. Usually he lets the storm rage on around us, but he keeps us calm in the middle of the storm. I've heard it said that, that God never allows pain without a purpose in the life of his children. You know what that's meaning? It means God never wastes pain. That's what that's saying. That God is always causing everything to work together for our ultimate good. And the ultimate good is conforming us into the image of his son. And that's exactly what Paul says in the very next verse. Pick up your Bibles. Verse 29. It says, and for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. Here's the fourth principle I want to discuss with you today. Fourth principle is the transformation due to God's love. Have you ever asked why? God, why is this happening to me? The answer is so you'll become more like Jesus. That's why. God wants your life, God wants my life to be a sweeter life, to be a richer life, to be a better life, to be a deeper life. And that's the good. So we'll be more like Jesus. Jesus' half-brother James, he said, count it all joy, brothers, when you fall into various trials. And I think we have to acknowledge it's way easier to say that than it is to actually do that. But we should do that. We should count it all joy. And the reason why is because God's sovereignly behind the scenes. He's, he's orchestrating, everything, orchestrating everything to change us. Because these various trials, in our, they, they produce patience in our life. And patience having its perfect work that you might be complete and entire, lacking nothing. So we need to know that God is working behind the scenes that we don't even know. You see, many people like to quote Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. But you need to know that verse is conditional. And the conditional part is the first part when Paul said, for those who love God. All things work together for good. The reason all things work together for good is because those who love God, meaning the born-again believer, the one that submitted their life to King Jesus, that hung on the cross for your sins, are being conformed to the image of his son, who's Jesus. Let me give you a very famous example in the, in the Old Testament of what we're talking about here. There's this time when the Jews went to captivity in Babylon. The Babylonians came into Jerusalem and they sacked the city. They destroyed the temple. They burned it with fire. They killed people. They took several captive. Thousands of them marched back to Babylon as slaves. It was horrible. It was evil. It was wicked. And there was this prophet by the name of Jeremiah. He wrote this letter to the slaves in Babylon. He wanted to know there's this sovereign God behind all this and he's using this. Jeremiah wrote this. He said, for I know the plans I have for you. Declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. You see, the context of that verse is that these evil things are happening. And God wanted to know 
He wanted his people to know that he's behind the scenes and he's got it under control. That God is working all things together to bring my future and a hope. How about this example? The only, the, 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 the pinnacle examples in the history of time where God took something terrible and worked it for good. That's the day when Jesus was murdered. Sinless perfection, robed in human flesh. He came to this earth. He lived a perfect life and he sacrificed on the cross. But first he was scourged, not once, but twice. He, each time he was scourged, most likely, historians say, most likely 39 times with a cat of nine tails. If you don't know what a cat of nine tails, it's a small wooden dowel about this long. And on that wooden dowel, there's nine lashes of leather. And at the end, each piece of leather is a piece of bone or metal that's uniquely designed that the lictor, that's the guy that's whipping into the victim, can lash the victim. And then the the ends grabs the flesh and he can remove the flesh from the intended victim. And the day that happened to Jesus, we call it Good Friday. Why? Because the Father allowed that to happen to the Son so that he could treat sinners like his own son or daughter. God the Father foreordained the torture and the murder of God the Son. The Father knew about it. He planned it. And he gave his Son. And Jesus gave his life. And what was so bad happened so to be so good so that those who believe faith's enough. That's it. We're saved by grace through faith. Faith in Jesus Christ is enough to get us out of heaven and from earth to, or excuse me, out of hell to earth all the way to heaven. Great theologian of way back, his name was John Stott. He said this, he said, quote, I could never believe in a God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who's immune to pain, right? Because we live in a world that's full of pain. Every day we experience pain. Stott goes on to say, many times in Asia, I've been to a Buddhist temple. And I looked at these huge statues of Buddha in repose with his legs crossed and his hands together, his eyes closed with a sort of restful smile on his face. Obviously detached from the pain of the world. Stott said, then I closed my eyes and I looked to the cross and I see Jesus hanging in agony and misery with spikes through his hand and spikes through his feet and blood coming down his face. Stott said, quote, that's the God for me. Our sufferings in this life, they become more bearable in the light of the cross. The cross of Calvary, Jesus felt it. Every ounce of pain, he experienced it. He knows something that can be so bad and become something so good for those that trust him. That's Romans 8, 28. There's just one more aspect I want to share with you about this verse. and Because we, we need to look at the big scope of things. We live in this life that's given to us and we can barely grasp with our human brain eternity. We think we know, but we don't know because we have such a limited life experience. When I was real little, um, my grandparents had a house on the beach. 
And we'd get into a car in Bakersfield, California. We'd start driving to the beach. And we would drive and drive and drive and drive. And it took forever. And I always asked the question. You know what the question was? Were you there in the car? That's exactly what... Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Over and over again, right? Anybody been there? You want to know how long that drive was? Two hours. Two hours! Because to me, to little John, two hours was an eternity. Today I can jump in my truck two hours. I can like almost hold my breath. It's so easy. I can make the three hours round trip to Cody and back and not even give it a second thought. What changed? Time didn't change. I changed. Hey, my perspective of time changed the longer I'm on this earth. The reason why I'm giving you that illustration, because that's very important when we consider verse 29 and 30 in the, in the scope of Romans chapter 8. Grab your Bibles one more time. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Here's my fifth and last principle I want us to consider today. Fifth principle is the suffering in this life pales in comparison to the glory in next life. Because we're born, we're given X number of years. Some people don't get many years and they die at a young age and it's tragic when that happens. Some others get more and they pass along at a ripe old age. I remember I was, I was very young, I was about eight years old and my, my parents had this collector's bottle of soda. And I remember at eight years old, I thought to myself, hey, in the year 2000, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to crack open that bottle of soda, and I'm going to drink it to celebrate the year 2000. And I remember very clearly me thinking, man, I'm going to be 26 then. That's old. Oh, to be 26 again, right? 26 isn't old, but it is when you're eight. You see, I have a better time perspective the longer I'm on this earth. But I want us to have not a earthly perspective on this verse. I want us to have a God-like perspective on, on, on this, what we're talking about here today. Let's consider everything we're talking about today, taking everything and having like God's perspective. Because God takes every bad thing in this life and he's using them for good. And we need to have the perspective of eternity. We can go from eternity past to eternity future, from predestination and election all the way to glorification. Consider God's sovereign hand in our life, because look at what Paul just said here. He said, he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. That's what Paul just said. Those five conditions take you from eternity past all the way to eternity future. And if you're a believer, four of those things are in the past tense. One of those things has not happened yet, right? You see, he foreknew us. That's, he knew us in advance. He predestined us. He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's what the Bible says. He called you. That was your day of your salvation. He called you. You said yes. You received Christ and you're saved. And then he justified you. And when that happened, you're justified. It's done. But there's one more, isn't there? Paul said, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Duh. Right? Anyone here been glorified already? Raise your hand. 
I see no hands. You've been glorified. No, we're not glorified yet. That one hasn't happened yet. But yet, because I'm looking around the room and I see a bunch of yet not glorified people. Because it just blows my mind when I think about it. So he foreknew you, he predestined you, he called you, he justified you, and someday in the future, he will glorify you. But that's not exactly what Paul said here, is it? Paul said, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's written in the past tense. Here we have an example of something that's written in the past tense that hasn't happened yet. Is that improper grammar, or do we think maybe something else is going on here? Let me explain it like this. Who's the author of this book? The whole book, the whole book. God, yeah, in case you didn't hear that, God. God wrote this book, right? You see, God is so sure that something's going to happen, that God and God alone can write something that hasn't happened yet, and he can write it in the past tense. That's how sure God is that this is going to happen. That your glorification, if you're a believer, is as certain to God as him choosing you before the foundation of the world. And him electing you. And him calling you. And him justifying you. You see, but for a believer, the next step is glorification. And to a sovereign God, it's a done deal. It's going to happen. It's so sure it's going to happen to God that he writes that in the past tense. God doesn't write about a believer's glorification in the past tense, and then somehow they lose their justification, and now this glorification thing is messed up because we lost our justification by something we did. No! That's not what that verse says. This verse tells us not only how assured our salvation is in this life, but just how assured our glorification is in the next life. This is what I want you to know. God did not stop loving a believer just because you blew it last week. He didn't remove your justification, nor did he forget that there's this promised glorification in the next life. You know why? Because a believer is proof positive of just how awesome and eternal God's love is for you. There's one more thing that I think is going on here that few people talk about. I'm going to blow through this, but... I believe believers are a reminder to the devil and the fallen angels about how loving God is. Ephesians chapter 3 and 1 Peter chapter 1, it speaks about how angels are watching and what's going on. And I think what's going on is that the the devil and the demons just scratch their head because they don't understand how awesome and loving our God is. I heard a story of a little boy that was trying to put a puzzle together. He's trying to put this puzzle together and it's a tough puzzle because there's big pieces and little pieces and red pieces and blue pieces, all sorts of pieces, and the boy couldn't figure it out. The little boy just got tired and he quit. And the father saw what was going on and so the father goes over, sits down at the table and in like no time flat just puts the puzzle together and the little boy goes up to his dad and says, Dad, how did you do that so quickly? And the father said, well, it's easy, son, when you look at the box. See, the box had a picture of what it was supposed to look like. You see, that's God. Because God can see the whole puzzle. Not just my life, your life, everyone's life. And he sees how every single piece gets put together. The devil doesn't know the picture. I don't know the picture. You don't know the picture. But God knows. God has the whole big picture in mind. When he allows you and I to go through what we go through, 
And he's working the end for good. A bunch of those things we don't understand. We don't even like, right? But they're for the good in your life. And I believe there's going to come a day when we're in glory with Jesus. It's all going to make sense. Might not make sense in this life, but the next life it's going to make sense. That same guy in the Old Testament I spoke of earlier, his name is Job. He lost his family and kids. Can't imagine. He lost his wealth and eventually he lost his health. And then his wife came to him and she gave terrible advice. Advice. She said, why don't you curse God and die? Oh, thanks, Mrs. Job. Huh. Fortunately, Job didn't do any of those things. Job goes on to say, though he, meaning God, slay me, I will hope in him. I want you to know, I don't know all the details that are going on in your life. I don't know everything you're going through. But I know that if you're a believer, what you're going through is for your good. And that good is to make you more like Jesus. And there will come a day when God glorifies you because that's what God has promised. He's guaranteed it's going to happen. What if you're here today and you're not a believer? What if you never bowed a knee to Jesus? What if you never recognized the sinless perfection of Christ and what he did for us on the cross and recognized your own wretchedness, my own wretchedness? If that's you, there's still hope for you as long as you're breathing air. Call out to him and he'll save you. The Bible says whoever calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. You've never called out to Jesus. There must be a moment in time when you recognize the glory of Christ. Now he went to the cross. He paid for your sins and my sins. And if you ever call out to him, you will be saved. If you've never called out to Jesus, I'd ask you to do that now. Let's say, dear God, I'm a sinner, but yet you love me and you sent your one and only son to die in my place. I give you my life. I trust in, in what Jesus did on that cross. Save me of my sins. And I say this in Jesus' holy, precious name.